Back Universe to the SFBCPC. That's an brief for Sci-Fi Book Club Podcast. On today's ep, we'll be talking about Mad Adam, written by Margaret Atwood in Earth Year 2013. We're coming to you from 900 years in your future. I'm your host, Brent Aldrich, and with me as always, via holographic projection, it's my co-host, Mr. John Love. Hi, John. Hey, Brent. John, I, um, I'm, I'm so nervous after our last podcast um, that I'm going to eat Tiny Dyson by accident. You do love sandwiches. I well, don't. I only love popcorn, and it has to be holographic projection brand. Otherwise, it's not for me. Okay. Which I guess we didn't clarify. I mean, Dyson did say that he thinks maybe he got lots of any number of experimental things implanted in him. And so we don't know if one of those involves being able to also turn into a holographic projection. It's That's true. Well, we'll have to find out after we conclude the second search for Dyson, once he unsandwichizes. And also, I'm not worried because he said he's in the kitchen. And as we've discussed many a time, we've never been in any other room in the pod besides this one. So True. Yeah, I feel like we'll see him turn into a sandwich in this room. And then we shouldn't worry. Unless he like... He, when he's tiny, like pulls the bread up and starts walking and like waddles into this room. So if a sandwich, if a sandwich walks by, we should take note. Yes. And don't take a bite. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I guess I'm a little bit sad to say that you're right. The second search for Dyson does continue. Uh, he was here for so, such, such a short time. Uh, and now galaxy. Short Bring guy. our boy home. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We're getting into raps kind of early. Oh. It's just a little, like slam poetry. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It was it was good to see him after a long time. Um, anyway, almost forgotten about him. Speaking of both being nervous and a long time, mm-hmm. I'm a little nervous because it's been a long time since I've read this book. Hey, me too, brother. Yeah, we've just been waiting around here because um, our contest winner, Ray, has never shown up again since she went to her cocoon. Right. Yeah, last we saw her, I think she went to take a nap in her cocoon. Yep. And went like, to a fallow state, if I remember. That's right. Like we're always saying around the pod, don't forget about Ray. We are always saying that. We never recorded it yet, I don't think, but we are always saying it otherwise. Never on mic. Right. But I've never forgot about Ray. Why is it that I don't believe you? What? Hello? Yeah, I've been here the whole time. This is me. You've been where? I've been on the ship waiting for the time we get to talk about this book. What? This is the first time that you've mentioned it. Wrong. (laughs) That's you can't confirm that. Yeah, we just said the opposite that we've never forgot about Dre and that we always say that. You're directly contradicting us here. You never forget about Dre or Ray. Yeah. <laughs> right. Never forget. Well, I have finished this book and I've been taking notes and I'm read, been ready to discuss it for a long time. So 
Yeah. Don't try to blame me for. Well, I wasn't trying to blame you for anything. All I was trying to do was let us off the hook to the universe so that when this inevitably is a shit show of a podcast, they don't care. I mean, they'll forgive us just this once. Yes. Sorry. Sorry, universe. Just this once. Uh, I've been waiting to finish this podcast so that I can finally go home. It's been thousands of years at this point. Wow. People might not even recognize me anymore. You you did. Here's, yeah, you I was went, cocooned for a while. And you went in there in specifically to age, as I recall, to get a little bit older. Yes, I'm much more mature. So uh, my discussion for the third book is probably going to be much more insightful than my discussion for the sex, second book. Whoa. Great. Me and me and John, meanwhile, have just devolved sitting here like idiots. Yep. I mean, for all I know, Brent might have grown another leg. And that's been, de-evolution is bad as it comes. I have been slowly, slowly practice folding over here. I don't know if you've noticed that. Got this big ream of paper. Fold a little bit, crumple it up, throw it on the floor. Well, I've been noticing. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some of the time you are folding with your feet and it's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. So far though, nothing, nothing's quite right. I just crumpled up and yell Kobe and throw it on the floor. We don't really have a trash can. It's true. Our whole lives are trash cans. Anyways. So what's, uh, what kind of mature topics do you got? And by mature topics, do you mean like sexy stuff or. There is quite a bit of sexy stuff in this third book. But so that's what you're talking about? No, not specifically. All right. Well, here, I tell you what, I can get us, I know how to get started in this book. If there's one thing I know, it's how to get started in a book. And that's by turning to the last page. And, um, yep, as is tradition, let's do it. I'm just going to read, I think, the last two lines. That's usually about what I read. So let's see. From the last page, a selection from the last page. Thank you. Now we will sing. The end. Beautiful. Uh, Ray, what's your favorite song? Space Jam. It's your chance. Do your dance at, at the, the Space, space jam. jam. All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome to the gym. If you want to slam, come on a jam. If you want to slam, here's your chance. Do your dance at, at the, the Space, space Jam. jam. All right. And now we have sung. That's good. I was actually, that was the one thing I do recall from the first two books that both of them leave us on a pretty big cliffhanger. And I was actually a little bit nervous looking at the last page of this book that I might actually spoil something for once. You know, I think the last two, we read the last page just like that and didn't really give away a single thing. But this one... I, I don't know that we still would have had I backed further up that page, but I don't know. It actually, well, here's the other thing. We actually finished a trilogy, which is very exciting. Um, it's the first time we've ever done that with any that we started on the podcast. And Ray, I guess you get to go home after this. Yes. That's, Excellent. That's, that's well, we've, uh, we've got three books into a five book uh, quadrilogy or quintilogy. Excuse oh, me. True. Hitchhikers. But uh, we just pretty much shit on that series the whole time because we're bad people. Mm-hmm. I think maybe, and we're not talking about that series, obviously, but just for a second, I think we maybe 
treated so harshly because it kind of performs the exact same role that we do of just being knuckleheads, essentially. So maybe it just hits too close to home. Sure. But we're not talking – that book's not on trial, and we're not on trial either, as far as I know, at least. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyways – I I think the past two times we've discussed the, the previous two books in this trilogy, we've talked about kind of an interesting book structure and narrative structure. Yeah. And I think this one maintains that for sure, where we basically have uh, Toby as a protagonist and kind of a narrator at times, and then like a God's eye view of Zeb and his exploits. And then one of the Krakers starts to develop the ability to both read and write. And then we also hear kind of his personal journal or his own narrative. And uh, and that's where the final section comes from. And so I don't know. I think that, that might be one of the reasons why we don't really get a lot out of this particular last page is because the story itself is, is so fractured within its the way it's even told. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, that might have something to do with it. I'm also curious if now is a good time to do our favorite segment that we started last episode, five word synopsis. I would challenge either one of you, or as a collaborative effort, you know, backsy forthsy style, five word synopsis of uh, Matt Adam. I see. Our friend Ray here already counting on her fingers, so mm-hmm. I think she can take care of this. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at counting, though, if you recall. That's, if, it's been since grade school that I learned math. Right, so. which is over 600,000 years ago, as I recall. Exactly. Well, what if I just start and you can jump in? You want to go alternating? If you need, sure. A, if you need that 20-word theme song while you think about it, I'm prepared to yep. do that. That would be great. It's everybody's favorite segment. We synopse a story in five words or less. I still got ten more words of this theme song. Everybody, now. All right, I think we uh, have decided that Ray is going to take care of the whole thing. So let's go for it. All right. Zeb, Toby, Pagoons, Battle, Death. Uh, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Five. Five words plus one. Oh, no. I told you I was bad at math. <laughs> she did, she she did, did say. Okay. Yep, it was premised. Since she, she said it, we have math. to allow it. <laughs> All right, and we shall. Any any anybody else would have gotten the foghorn and gotten cut off. <laughs> that's right. But well, that, that, that's kind of our strategy the whole time, anyways. It's just admitting our own shortcomings, mm-hmm. and therefore you have to forgive them, forgive us for them. I think y'all are both just feeling a little bit guilty that I've lived about a quarter of my life on this ship that I was supposed to just be visiting for a week. That's where I think that's coming from. So I'm kind of confused about the Uh cocoon technology. So time moves faster when you're in one? For you personally, it ages you. So it takes away from your your total lifespan. But sometimes you have to do that because, you know, 
I see. Yeah. So you have a well, fixed that case, lifespan, but you can speed it up. Right. Which okay. some people, they would think, why would I want to do that? But if you don't speed it up, then your life just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And you never grow. You never mature. It's mm-hmm. So you got to, you know, got to just get in the cocoon every now and then. Mm-hmm. We maybe should have woken her up one podcast earlier because there was a lot of talk in the previous book about um, hibernation and showing up in different timelines for a, ver- a variety of reasons. That's true. So do you want to go into a very um, odd segment of boy your guest to tears? Yeah, well, why not? Uh, deep in the middle of five word synopsis. Yes. Yes. We'll we'll find our way out. I believe in us. Um, well, I guess it's not even really boy your guest to tears because that's not really a connection with this book. We that can we're get reading. into it. Hey, hey! Yeah, it's if connect- there's one thing we can do, it's bore our guests to tears, and not math. Uh, well, I don't even know where I want to go with that. Besides the fact that I what I already said, where it happens in the previous book, I have a question about it. In the other book, though, hibernation. So we had these people go into hibernation. They don't age at all while they're in hibernation, and so they come out two hundred years later, and they find themselves in a completely different world that they don't recognize. It sounds like you're doing the opposite almost. You're, um, you yourself get to age a lot, get to mature, seemingly get to have all these life experiences in the cocoon, and then you come out to the same, the very world that you just left. Right. Yeah, exactly. You can still dream while you're in the cocoon, so it's not like you're bored or anything. You still experience a whole bunch of mm-hmm. crazy things just like when you're dreaming. It just mm-hmm. – uh, it's – a lot of experiences happening for the outside world very quickly. For you, it feels like it takes thousands of years. So the dreams themselves are created by you or the the cocoon pod machine gives them to you? No, you're still dreaming. It's coming from your own mind. It's just at hyper speeds. But I see. It feels so you like can experience it, many more. But it feels like it takes longer. <laughs> Right. Okay. Just making sure. Whoever created this technology and put it on this pod, I want to shake their hand as long as they have two legs. Their paw. Their paw? Yeah. Oh. I think Rumple Scott invented it and he has paws. Rumple Scott? <laughs> Dr. Rumple Scott? That the Rumpel very Scott? doctor? <laughs> yes. The Dr. Rumple Scott. Oh, we know about Dr. Rumplescott. He's our arch nemesis. That's right. What? Why did why do you have this cocoon on your pod? We don't want to we don't really want to talk about the ownership of the pod. You just said you wanted to shake the hand and I was telling you he has paws and not hands. You yeah, I don't want to talk about owning the pod that we're on. I'll talk about shaking people's paws all day. <sighs> let's, very let's, let's go back to, to this book. All right, in. let's end or your guest to tears. That brings us back to five-word synopsis. Uh, Just to recap, those five words are Zeb, Ren, Pagoon, Battle, Salvation. John, would you care to uh, interpret those words? Uh, Sure. So we've met Zeb previously in the previous books, but this book really does take, I don't know, it really digs into his past. 
So previously, we just kind of know him as the enforcer for the God's Gardeners. And he seems like a, you know, a, a biker type who just roughs people up. And this one, we learned that in his past, he is a hacker who then kind of runs from a variety of people, including his father, who was a reverend of the Church of Petroleum, uh, which yeah, worships basically fossil fuels. Uh, so he's just kind of on the run his whole life and puts on a variety of hats, both li- literally and figuratively, uh, and plays a lot of different roles. Uh, so he's one of the main characters, and we learn of his exploits. Uh, Toby, the God's Gardener, who was the main protagonist of the previous book, she and Zeb are developing a relationship. She's Ooh. That's right. That's, that's the theme song to a different segment. But Toby uh, is great. I like Toby a lot. No, she uh, is explaining. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. It's been a long time since I read this book. That's why I Toby, threw it over to you. Thank you. Toby's explaining a lot of both her own and Zeb's exploits and of Jimmy the Snowman and of Crake. And it's basically creating a history for the Crakers that she's telling orally to um, a better understanding of the world that they were born into. Uh, what was the next word? Pigoon. Pigoon. Oh, yeah, the Pigoons from previous two books, who we learned were genetically engineered to have human tissues that could be used for transplants, including brain tissue. Well, using that brain tissue, they got really smart. Smart enough that they could communicate with the Krakers and eventually the Pagoons and the whole gang, including Toby, Zeb, and the Krakers go into a battle alongside the Pagoons to attack the Painballers, who are still the main antagonists that we never really see um, kind of the whole, well, it's not exactly true, but they're kind of in the background as this looming presence, always on the fringes of the society that they've created. And so they go into battle with the Pagoons against those guys. That's the battle. So I've already described that one. Done. Two birds with one stone, as they say. Salvation. Salvation. I Well, I guess they're all saved, at least from the looming menace of the painballers. Then towards the end of the book, there is another fire uh, nearby the camp for, for this whole group that we've been following and Zeb goes to see what happened, essentially. He doesn't come back. Toby eventually takes one of her kind of elixirs or potions that makes her die as well because she's so heartbroken that Zeb's no longer there, walks through the forest, and gets eaten by buzzards, if I remember correctly. And the Krakers... One of them, Blackbeard, learns how to write. And then the story just kind of becomes their story of existing in this new world that beginning uh, in the first book kind of opened up for them. So I guess the salvation is them, a new genesis, if you will, with them inhabiting this uh, world roughly devoid of humans, we think. Whew. And after that, I'm going to take a nice long sip of Corellin's Sweet Tea, the sweetest tea in the galaxy. Listen to how long this sip is. 
And we're back. That's how you play five word synopsis. Excellent. I'll I'll say I was just looking at my notes during that too. I think um as we were saying earlier, you know, these multiple voices throughout the whole thing. And again, I have to say, uh, Margaret Atwood just there's a couple notes I made that are just like this is just really a great paragraph just in terms of like writing, right? Um so I, I just looked at one of those, but I also saw I had a note on the other page where there's this quote that I'd like to read. She says, just talking about storytelling, and this is about uh, Toby trying to figure out Zeb's story so she can tell it to the Krakers. And there's this line that says, there's the story, then there's the real story, then there's the story of how the story came to be told, then there's what you leave out of the story, which is part of the story too. And I think that that little fragment says a lot about how Margaret Atwood has composed this whole book. There's like all these different voices happening. There's things that are said and not said. Even the language of when Toby is telling a story to the Krakers, we don't hear their dialogue, but we do hear Toby saying things like, you have to stop singing now. You have to stop, stop saying goodnight, you know, things like that. But um, just to read this other thing where I just made a note to say, like, man, Margaret Atwood, excellent writer. This is part of the story of Zeb, and this is when that Chuck guy has tried to sabotage or, or kill Zeb, maybe. And they crash this helicopter or a thopter. And so here's just some lines from that. Blood was coming from somewhere on the top of Zeb's head. He could feel the warmth trickling down. Scalp wound. Not dangerous, but they bleed a lot. Your head's the most shallow part of you, his sociopath of a father had been in the habit of saying. Except for your brain. And your soul, supposing you've been blessed with one, which I doubt. On and on. Um, Too bad Chuck was dead, in a way. He must have had some good sides to him. Maybe he liked puppies. But now there was one less asshole in the world, and wasn't that a plus? And, and just on and on, just where it, it, it tracks a little bit, like it, it says a thing and then it uh, says, or maybe this other thing, you know, it sort of justifies every little sentence in there or goes into a backstory to explain some more things or has this weird aside about like, maybe he liked puppies. And it, it's just, is, it's such a complex way of telling, of describing, you know, I, I think in some of the books that we've read, if this was, um, Arthur C. Clarke or somebody like him, I think he would have said, and then Chuck died. You know, um, I think that the narration would have been very different or simpler, but in this, there's this whole like explanation around that and, and different ways of looking at it and saying, you know, it just goes on and on as told and retold. So I think just, I'm very attracted to this way of storytelling because it, it problematizes or complicates every little incident. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was totally one of the maybe three or so main themes of the whole trilogy probably was kind of who gets to tell the story, how is the story told, and how does it persist in the world? So, I mean, the first book, again, was kind of from the viewpoint of a social elite and what he thought was really happening the second one was from 
kind of the everyday people who have to deal with the repercussions of major decisions that they don't necessarily have a strong part in. And then this most recent one was everybody was kind of on the same playing field, but then you have the introduction of a Craker who is learning how to read and write. And so how do they start to understand what narrative does, what it's for, how stories work. I, I think it was in this book, but Toby, um, it must be in this book, Toby talks to Blackbeard and this this young Craker who, and Toby gives him a book and or no, Toby writes down somebody's name, maybe his own, I can't remember whose, and has him take it over to another person in their camp and has that person read it to him. And same word that Toby said, and he was just floored by the fact that you could have a piece of information written down that meant the same thing to multiple people mm-hmm. because the Quakers didn't really have this abstract symbol system. They, they didn't have uh, a written, I mean, they had language, but they had never written it down. And so, yeah, the, the complication of narrative and perspectives and who gets the authoritative voice on history is always in flux in, in all three books of this trilogy and I, yeah, I picked up on that as well. And, and I think that's yeah, a really interesting aspect of this that some of the other books that are, you know, deeper maybe into their particular uh, premise and missed, you know, the power of language for sure. That being said, uh, I'm bringing in a new segment this week called Contextless Paragraph of the Week. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to have as little preamble as possible, but I also agree there was just some fantastic language. And while reviewing my notes, I found this little gem of a paragraph and didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So here we go. Audiobook. Now Toby, she tells herself, talking pigs, communicative dead people, and the underworld in a styrofoam beer cooler. You're not on drugs. You're not even sick. You really have no excuse. And that's been the contextless paragraph of the week. Hey. I think I kind of remember that part of the story. Uh-oh. Right? Does it... We're out of the contextless paragraph of the week <laughs> segment. And so clarifying questions are not allowed. Ooh, it's cold. Fair enough. There's also, also a callback. Callback for those of you who've been following along at yeah, that's callback corner. For those of you who've been following along at home, anytime I tried to ask a clarifying question to Ray in previous episodes, I was not allowed to do so. And that's been the callback corner, also the justice corner. You really know how to hold a grudge, don't you? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I thought that one of the interesting things about this novel is that I would say the character that we get the most information or uh, the most background story on is Zeb, but we get that through him telling his story to Toby. And that's kind of interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think when we start to learn more about Zeb, him and Toby are already an item. Um, And it's interesting because as he's telling the story and Toby's canting it, you can tell that there's certain things that he leaves out or kind of tells in a special way so as not to, I don't know, make her jealous or 
because he has a very interesting background. So he's been in a lot of different places. Um, but I think looking back on it, it's kind of interesting to think that we get a lot of information from him as far as his background, but it's all told through a filter, you know, a filter that he's using to talk to it, talk to Toby. Uh, so it makes me wonder how much of his story he left out or we wouldn't have to tell. Definitely. Which that, I mean, totally comes back to exactly what you were saying, Brent, um, about just the way that Toby acknowledges how stories are told, how people communicate with one another, which if we want to go into another very short segment of Boy Your Guest to Tears, could be connected back with the Dark Forest and how mm -hmm. the Trisolarans didn't understand that communication could be different from thought. They present their thoughts as they are thinking them. So there's no way for them to hide stuff from anybody. Um, so in this, I mean, it's a very human book in that way, in that there is the possibility for people to be intentionally or unintentionally fooling people to just be withholding information for a variety of reasons. So yeah, this um, maybe that's why this book feels so powerful is that mm -hmm. the characters are totally three-dimensional and it always feels like any information that we get as the reader has to do with people dealing with the situation and not because the author wants to prove anything to you necessarily. I mean, not to say that this book is light on the science and the interesting kind of sci-fi bits, because um, it's absolutely not. I mean, there's so much in interesting information about genetic splicing, mm -hmm. um, even mean to create a new species, all of that kind of stuff is incredibly interesting, but it's always, you know, hu humanity like tackling that information instead of that information, uh, pushing the, the story forward. Uh, Ray, what you were just saying about the way in which we come to hear Zeb's story is filtered through him telling it to Ren. And there's this, there's a few sections that I just marked where it seems like Ren, well, Margaret Atwood by way of Ren is, you know, like really jabbing at a character like Zeb or like a dude like him. And there's this one section where he is describing this former relationship with Wynette, um, a former secret burger employee. And in the dialogue just reads something like, but there's this line where he's talking about like it basically just dehumanizes her in the description and then and then goes on to say he apologizes for that but such is the case with hormone sodden adolescent males and it's nature's plan and he thought he was in love so fuck it um you know like there's this whole like justification for the part of the story that he's telling partly because it's told to Ren, but I think partly because M Margaret Atwood is like just bringing it a little bit. And she does that a few <laughs> times in this book, I think by way of Zeb to Ren, which is very nice. Definitely. Um, so it's time for a segment, definitely not everybody's favorite segment, but a segment. It's your ax to grind. Uh, welcome to your, your ax to grind. This one seems a little trivial, and like I feel like when I get done grinding this axe, I'm mm -hmm. still going to feel like an asshole. But there were a few moments, and I have not been able to find these like really ever in any Margaret Atwood that I've read so far. But there are a few moments 
that I just kind of wanted to cringe reading a few little seg- segments. And they all have to do in, I don't know, lingo that seemed very of 2013 from my research. So let's uh, travel back here to page uh, 143 in my paper copy. Uh, Now I'm going to have to find the actual paragraph, which I did not mark Mm -hmm. because I'm an idiot. Um, Okay, here we go. So this is an audiobook. Did you know that baking soda comes from the Trona deposits in Wyoming, says Ivory Bill? Or it used to come from there. Oh, Ivory Bill, says Swift Fox, favoring him with a smile. With you around, who needs Wikipedia? Seemed like bringing in Wikipedia there was just a little bit of a strange choice. Um, But we're not done. Let's go to page 182, for those of you following along at home. All right. And this just kind of starts this page, so I don't have much context. But I believe that here Zeb is talking about his past history as a hacker. So... I might have just done it for the lulls if I'd had the time. It would have been one of those ephemeral, etc. doesn't matter. For the lulls. I don't know. For for this person that we learn about originally as this big, tough, like, Mm -hmm. biker guy. He did it all for the lulls. I don't know. He did it all for the lulls. And I've got uh, one more section, and then I'm going to come back to that page for another juicy little tidbit. All right. On page two... 32 with all these numbers i'm starting to think it's the listener challenge (laughs) that's not yet (laughs) not yet young padawan okay so zeb had just gotten a job at healthwiser and he was talking about uh just i don't know sort of getting into the culture there um and let me see Okay, so once Zeb, audiobook, once Zeb was inside Healthwiser West, he learned its memes and set about mimicking them as fast as he could. Which I understand in that context, it's not talking about specifically like internet-based image memes or anything, but it still just felt a little forced. So those three instances are the only times that I like kind of jumped outside of the universe that Margaret Atwood was laying out because the language just made me hurt inside a little bit. But otherwise, and I don't want to sound like a nitpicking asshole, but otherwise, she nailed it. It's a 390-page book. I think three times is pretty good <laughs> as far as faults go. There's like three times that you dropped out of the story. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah and, and don't be mistaken. It's fantastic. But I just, you know, I've got all these axes, and they need grinding. So many. Uh, so... In, this is unprecedented double yeah. axe to grind. I'm going yes. even deeper. Another axe to grind. On 182, the lulls page, as it's come to be known in my world. As I had mentioned previously, Zeb was talking about his hacking exploits. Yes. And apparently he pissed off the wrong folks. And he was talking about what they might do to him. What might they and do? And so this... Oh, well, let me tell you. They might string him up in change. Oh, wow. They might (laughs) string him up in chains from a bridge or similar. Minus a leg (gasps) and all my blood. Right? Those guys are monsters. Back in the original Axe to Grind segment, Margaret Atwood is a hero. 
that's been your axe to grind. Brought to you by Corellin's Axes. They're really sharp. Ouch. And we're back. Can we talk about how cool Zeb is, though? I mean, when you're reading about his background and all the things that he's done and all of the sticky situations he's got out of, mm-hmm. I wanted to be him or to know someone like him. And obviously, we're hearing the story because we're hearing the story through Toby, who's hearing it through Zeb. So anyone that has you know, the opportunity to tell their own story is already going to sound cool. I mean, they have the most kind of uh, creative range. You know, they, they, they can make certain decisions, but... The story of Zeb is quite a story. Huh. I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. For, for whatever reason, I feel like Zeb's story kind of overall, like I remember this book being a, a lot about him and hearing about his background, but I don't remember all that many specifics. So is there anything in particular that you thought made him super badass? Uh, it seemed like he lived a thousand different lives. Like he was a thousand different characters in a thousand different places. And he tricked death a thousand different times. Um, And he didn't ever seem afraid. I think maybe that was the biggest thing. When you hear his story as a child growing up with this monster for a dad, who we later find out killed his mom. Um, He's growing up in this household where not only is he growing up with this monster, but there's no way out because his dad is also the higher up in a church. um, And everybody knows what's going on at all times. So there's really no escape. And somehow he becomes so good at hacking, he not only finds a way to get away, but he also happens to steal has in the meantime. So he gets away, but he also kind of destroys his father's way of finding him, or so he thinks. Uh, He works for a magician for a while. He's down out in the in the plebs, like walking around. He doesn't. I don't know. It's he's just so tough. He survives a bear attack yeah. and basically walks around inside a bear until he gets to, he's still someone's bike uh, yeah. to, f- to find his way back to a bar, you know? Uh, uh, he just has the coolest story. And throughout the time, at least that he's telling it to us, he never shows any indication that he was ever afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know, just very empowering. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really funny. Cause it, now that you say that I, I agree, like he's the one that sticks out in my mind thinking about this book. And now that you say that, the one part where I I thought like, man, this doesn't fit this guy at all is when he had to go, maybe when he was working at Healthwiser and his disguise in that case was like a gross mustache and like khakis, you know? And, and that seems yeah. like my, the, the image I have of him in my mind, that would seem so out of place. Like that's the just like normal average joe that's the part to me that seemed to not fit this guy in any way and like that that would be the disguise that you would see right through but yeah when he when he's wearing a bear skin and attacks a guy on a bicycle and rides back to a bar that that (laughs) scene is delightful definitely um yeah one of the things i like that scene particularly for going back to some of the stuff we've already talked about around storytelling is that there's also a mention of how in the papers the people or the passers by think that there's been like um, not like a not a bear attack but like the abominable snowman yeah, exists Bigfoot, Bigfoot yeah Bigfoot type. exists because yeah. he's wearing this big you know bear skin to survive and so it's another narrative that kind of you know tails off of this one 
that you know is somebody else in the world, their entire universe and the story they tell over and over again. So it's another perspective, or at least a little blip of it that we get from the kind of mainline story about how people perceive all these different things. Uh, but yeah, as far as Zeb goes, it's it's interesting that he is powerful both as you know this sort of bruiser type character that we find in the first book uh, or the second book, sorry, and and also kind of like shapeshifter when he has to be as well. He seems like the most kind of adaptable hero that you can find in a lot of ways. You know, depending on the situation, he'll either outsmart you or just knock your teeth out. Yeah, and I think that it's a really interesting contrast to his brother Adam because obviously Adam survives in the same world um, and has to take on egos, but Zeb is can survive in the the plebs, the plebs. <laughs> he can survive in that world because he's also tough enough or disheveled enough or whatever that he doesn't stand out, whereas Adam can't quite be, I don't know, wrong enough or uh, bad enough or whatever the words you want to use, he can't, he doesn't quite fit into that world. And so you see that even though he's also extremely intelligent and seems to always take the high road in a way that kind of prohibit or prevents him from taking on more roles. I mean, Zeb can do that because Zeb doesn't have standards the way that Adam does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at some point, even Definitely. describing the Rev and that, they say, like, yeah, the easiest the easiest thing to do or, like, what's what's fashionable is, like, just start a cult. Like, just, just simple. And to some extent, Adam does that, too. Like, yeah, it's, if you want to, I don't know, create your own whatever. Like, if, if you think that people ought to conform to your view of the world, like, just start a cult. So simple. Um, whereas Zeb is maybe a little bit more nuanced and um, at least sees himself. I don't, I don't think he ever thinks that he has the moral high ground in any situation. Whereas mm-hmm. Adam certainly does. Mm-hmm. Though, though in the end, and this we started to see this last time, Adam and the entire God's Gardeners, who certainly would say, I think that they have the moral high ground. They predicted the waterless flood they have been preparing for it for years. They are the ones who we see to some extent like wither out. You know, Adam, I think in this book, dies, uh, or as far as we know, others, I don't really remember, others uh, fade <laughs> away to some extent. Whereas you've got like a Zeb and some of these others who um, I don't think have ever claimed that it's like their way or the highway but they've been adaptable enough that when this disaster happens, they're able to like find a new way forward in light of that. You know, I think that that's where we see like the God's gardeners cult ultimately break down is, is yeah, they could predict it. Yeah. They could say this terrible thing's happening, but once that happens, like, so what, you know, what are now what, like, does it even matter? Right. Yeah, I um, I think that's a really interesting point in terms of just those two, Adam and Zeb, their relative adaptability. Uh, it, it seems like it, it maybe does come down to like the moral, whatever moral distinction or moral line that they want to draw. I feel like Zeb was just better at perceiving 
where the moral line of any particular at any particular time and any particular situation really was and adams was a lot more you know it's it's here or it's nowhere Mm -hmm. Uh, and therefore he um yeah couldn't really kind of cope and and it's interesting because we hear about the god's gardeners fading out um through i can't remember exactly how we hear it but anytime we do it's like oh now they're gonna eat meat again because you have to so their their moral line is like slowly deteriorating where zeb has always kind of had one that's in flux and zeb almost doesn't even really believe in a high ground except as a you know if you're there then you have the advantage on the enemy whoever they are at this particular time um so yeah this is a really interesting contrast of characters for sure Mm. Well, and I think related to that, I was just this note that I made, this is with Toby when she's to some extent, you know, she's I think this is when she's wanting to start like journaling again and keeping a log of days and records and what happens and says, well, there's a few quotes in here. 136 in the hardback. Um, she says it's it's hard to concentrate on the idea of a future. She's too immersed in the present um, skipping down, there's this idea that here it is. She's waiting for a sign that there was someone else left alive, waiting for meaningful time to resume. And I think that idea that, you know, I think others in that situation, she's saying that others, others of those survivors have kind of lulled off actually again i'm thinking a little bit of um the dark forest just another callback to say that you had these survivors after a disaster and many of them lost any sense of purpose because they'd always had some vision for like here's here's what's next here if i do this thing it'll be meaningful in the long run in the future like whatever but i think the distinction made here is to say like if, if you're waiting for that, like this is the meaningful time to begin, that will always get pushed off indefinitely, indefinitely. Like the actual like stuff of the world, the actual rub is almost always like it's now to some extent, like putting things off, waiting like, oh, I can't do this now because or it's, it won't be significant until this time when actually – it's more like in that present moment, here's how, here's how we like, here's how we have to figure out how to live in this world. Mm-hmm. I feel like you just got out of a cocoon print. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been spitting on paper wads and building one around me. Good. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Hopefully once you get out of that cocoon, you just have, I don't know, five wings instead of five extra legs. That would be great. I'll be honest. It both. I know. I want both. Nope. Wrong. Okay. So what did y'all think about how the relationship with humans and Krakers changed with the Pagoons? Because before the Pagoons were always this very scary. I mean, we had Toby stuck in the tower when she was at the Anahu Spa and she couldn't leave because the Pagoons knew that she was there. And they were also very good hunters. Um, and so she was pretty much just stuck there. Um, that relationship obviously changes in this book. Would you? How do you feel about that? 
Well, I mean, in terms of some of the other stuff we've talked about, it seems like it's really related to language and not narrative, but language specifically. So there's a language barrier between the Pagoons and all the humans. So the Krakers are really the, the translators between the two. So hypothetically, I mean, the Pagoons might have been trying to communicate, trying to say, like, no, we just want you to stop shooting us. Uh, that's what we're actually after. And that's what eventually the kind of peace treaty that the Krakers come up with is based on, you know, that sort of principle. Just stop messing with us because there is an enemy. We've watched all your guys' actions. You are civil um, and those guys aren't. So let's become friends and we'll take them out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it seems like it's a language thing. And I'm not saying that earlier when maybe the Pagoons were starving uh, and they really wanted to eat something that they would have spared anybody because they actually are kind of a more coldly logical species than of just about anybody mm-hmm. in the book. They, uh, I mean, they don't have funerals. They eat. They their, do. Did they for their pig babies? Yeah, that's how the whole thing started. Was they like buried their pig, uh, their baby piglets? They would cover them in flowers, and they kind of had a funeral. A funeral or a ritualistic gotcha. burial experience. Well, then my whole thing is punctured. No, no. I, no. Think, I think what you're saying about uh, language or communication is like spot on because, uh, I mean, you could compare this to a situation where you have uh, that are, you know, in war, or they're battling each other, but they're fighting over the same thing or um, maybe – they're fighting against the same enemy, but if they don't have a way to express that they share the same enemy, then I mean, and this is the first time where we find the Krakers can kind of translate between the two and they realize we're stronger together. Um, yeah, we have our differences. We need to eat. Y'all don't want us to eat you. That's a problem. But they find out that if they can join forces, they actually can be strong enough to defeat the pain ballers, which are, you know, the worst enemy out there at the point. I think you're right. As soon as they have that, they can communicate and have that understanding. They start to appreciate and realize kind of like what the benefits are of joining together mm-hmm. as instead of competing with each other. When you ask that as well, I, you know, I thought when I was reading about the Pagoon treaty with the humans, <laughs> I, I, I love that actually, but here's my question. Um, to some extent, when the Pagoons join forces with the humans, I was I was totally supported it. I actually had, strangely, a little bit more of a question about when the Krakers and the humans actually join forces. Because as we got to know the Krakers, you know, they here's what I think it is from my perspective. I'm going to go way, way back, John, to our first episode about the um, the uncanny valley. So the idea that the closer a thing becomes to resembling a human but not quite a human, it gets creepy. And so, like, the Pagoons totally – well, they maybe have some human brain cells but look totally non-human, right? They look like pigs, essentially. And so this idea of cross-species peace treaty – seems awesome and kind of adorable because little piggies. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd watch a movie called Cross Species Peace Treaty just for the fact of how much of a tongue twister the title is. Would you watch Cross Species Peace Treaty Goes to New York? Because that's the sequel. Yep. 
Um, Absolutely. But um, but the Krakers are cross species. Three, two, uh, cross two species. Cross species peace treaty four. The best of both worlds. <laughs> cross species peace treaty five. Reese's pieces. And then they tried that that reboot where everybody's younger and yeah, nobody's into it. Mm-hmm. The twins wouldn't come back for it. Classic C- crosser species. <laughs> but um, but the Krakers are almost human, but not human, and in a way, their alliance with the humans made it. I, I, I'm just reading it anyway, like on the page to me, that seemed a little bit stranger. And I think it was just because they were they they do blur that line of are they human? Are they not human? They look a lot like us, but they're not us. And so I think that there is this, it toes the line a little bit for me about, so how, how do we make an alliance or make a peace treaty with an other in this case? Yeah. Well, I mean, a distinction in a weird way, it's, it's not like what is humanity, but the people who get ostracized or that need to be eliminated are the ones that are sort of animalistic, if you will. Like the pain ballers, they mention over and over again, they've been so desensitized. They just use up any female that they get their hands on and then probably eat their kidneys and leave them to die. You know, they're killed. Uh, so they are, the pain ballers, the least human in the way that the pagoons, you know, have cares, desires, rational thoughts, as well as the Krakers do, and then obviously humans. So it's weird that the, you know, of three species, two of which are actually non-human, they find a common enemy because of their inhumanity. Mm-hmm. The third, the third one is, or the, you know, the pain ballers are the inhuman ones. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think it took a while for the humans to accept the Krakers. Because I remember when they first, the very beginning of the book is when Ren and Toby save Amanda from the paintballers. And they come back with Jimmy, Jimmy the Snowman, and all the Krakers follow. And the Krakers weren't necessarily invited, but they follow them. And they get back to the house, and all the humans are kind of ish. And they don't want the humans, they don't want the Krakers to come inside the house. They want them to all stay outside. And I think I recall some kind of uh, an argument or a debate among all the humans where they're trying to figure out, well, do we let them sleep inside the yard or outside of the yard? If we let them sleep outside of the yard, could they get taken by the pagoons? And they're trying to figure out where do we put these things, but also, you know, these things aren't clean enough or safe enough to come inside the house and be with us. Um, and obviously at some point they kind of get past that because there's four different women that get pregnant with Quaker mm-hmm. men. Um, so they get over that initial apprehension. And part of it probably is that they never show any signs of violence. You know, the Quakers are always very mild tempered. They don't understand everything. And so sometimes they come across pretty naive in a lot of respects, but they're never violent or they never do anything to try to hurt anyone. Even, you know, the, some of the females that do get pregnant, it's almost by accident that the mm-hmm. Quakers accidentally 
pregnant you did. Whoops. <laughs> this segment brought to you by Accidental Beans. And we're back. Yeah. Yeah, except, you know, I was remembering that, that Crows is the one um, of the humans who, like, I think they say goes native at some at some point early on. He's peeing with the with the Krakers. He's loving it. He loves yeah. it. I remember it was funny, too, after they mentioned that he yeah, he's gone native and that he's peeing as well. I think that they mentioned, like, I mean, his pee doesn't actually work, so we have to go and pee in the same spot to repel the wool bogs. But, you know, we let him think that he's participating. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, a weird sort of... Um, I don't know, they're the adult in the situation and they know what's going on and they're, you know, just appeasing this child. It's fantastic. Now it's time for your favorite segment. Uh, splice. But since this The Splice is, is right? Yeah, but since this is the third Come on version, down. It's the Splice is right. It's a little bit different this time. I think last oh, book it was the creepiest splice, and this time it's the most unfortunate splice. So, well, we we'll fire up your cars. Fire up your theme song. It's more like it. This looks like a bat. This looks like a cow. It's a bat cow. This one looks like a turtle. This one looks like a ninja. It's a teenage mutant <laughs> ninja turtle. This looks like a giant rat. And this looks like a slice of pizza from Pizza Hut in the it's, mid-1990s. It's some stuff. In the Ninja Turtles movies. Great. Great. John, do you want to start us? Do you want to start us off? Do I want to start us off with the most unfortunate genetic splice? Hmm. Let's see. Hey, here. while you're thinking about that, I just want to, I just want to ask a question that um, I felt was raised during the theme song. Do you remember the, or or have you seen rather, the mid nineteen nineties Pizza Hut commercials with a slice of pizza that, um, like his face was made out of pizza toppings, and he talked. I feel like there was some commercial where he was beamed off of the planet by extraterrestrials. Did we steal him? I don't remember. We might we might have abducted him. Well, we've got we a lot of bait in this pod. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll find out later, Universe. Okay, I remember I remember Pizza Face from the Nickelodeon show, All That. You know, I wonder if there was a crossover and he advertised, maybe he sold out and advertised for Pizza Hut for people to literally eat him. We'll find out. I mean, I remember one of the last theme songs that we've done for this particular segment, A California Raisin, was brought up. So that's another anthropomorphized food that obviously gets eaten at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in this case, dehydrated and then eaten. Maybe hey, re worse. Related to that, I've raised this question, but not actually, you know, for the record. But um, what is it about the Cheez-It commercials where the whole premise is you have cheese, you let it age, 
if it's not mature enough, you let it age some more. And then when it has reached the peak maturity in intellect and thoughtfulness, you lead it to slaughter and make it into Cheez-Its. Why would you do that? Why would that be the time? Unless you're an anti-intellectual autocracy. I mean, aged intelligent cheese just tastes better. So, you know, like if you're a monster, then you're willing to slaughter it at its peak because it tastes so good. Well, there you have it. Thank you. Glad I could clear that up for you. It seemed like a, a segment in, unto itself. Coming from the ageless one, Ray. Mm-hmm. You must taste good. Anyways, the most unfortunate genetic splice, as we all know, is a human spliced with a holographic projection because it only comes out with one leg. How unfortunate. I wish I could ask clarifying questions in this segment. You cannot. And that's what I was banking on. Coming to you, Brent. Okay. Huh. Well, um, the most unfortunate splice is um, just the uh, the left half of a fish like let's say a tuna fish and the right half of a um, land-dwelling tiger. As opposed to the space-dwelling tigers that we have now. Or an ocean-dwelling tiger. No, we have space-dwelling tigers now. Okay. Oh, well, I I know you knew that, but universe yeah thank thank you too thank you both for clearing that up and no clarifying questions but clarifying statements are allowed all right we did it do we rate these or do you say who wins or just no there's not it's not a competition close this out though do you have like some last thoughts like raise raise last thoughts What, what did jerry springer call it Rays of light. Some things are just too precious to be spliced, like a cat and a jellyfish. Those don't belong together. People get stung so badly. So That sounds like a pretty unfortunate splice. Yeah. That looks like a Pringle chip. And weirdly, I was thinking that that looks like a potato. It's a stack of Pringles chips. Just made of from one potato. Yeah, one potato's worth of Pringles. Duh. That one looks like a battle droid. That looks like Darth Vader's hand. It's... Uh, Darth Vader, but his uh, hand is a battle droid. Okay, we're going to move on now. (laughs) Great session. Wow. We really did it. Everyone at home is 
thinking how glad they are. There's only three books in this series. <laughs> but there's at least so far roughly an unlimited number of podcasts that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So the party don't stop here, even though some would like it to. Yeah. A, uh, a space pod party is the best kind of party because the space pod parties don't stop. I thought it was because they don't have gravity. And that. People don't like gotcha. to talk about that, though. Oh. But we, we have gravity here, though. So... We're in the galactic center. There's a black hole here. Tons of gravity. Mm-hmm. We, get, we got more gravity than anything else. Yeah, but not in every room. You don't have gravity in every room. That's true. We have the anti-gravity rooms, I guess. I don't know about those. I've only seen this one room. Got it right here. And we're close to that black hole, so John and I are actually aging super slowly, if not in reverse. I pity you both. Thank you. I that feel like... was the pity corner. I'm looking at my notes. I, I hope that you guys have more to say. I just have one more thing that I want to at least point out. You know, I could go on, but whatever. There's one thing that I marked very early on where Crows is talking to Ren, maybe, and he says, This is fucking weird. Ren says, Crows, everything is fucking weird. And I feel like that little sentiment of, of everything is fucking weird sets the stage for this whole book. But it reminded me a whole lot of in the previous book, The Year of the Flood, when the owner or bouncer at Scales and Tails, whose name I'm Mortis, says something, I think, to um, when Ren is, is applying for a job there. And she says, like, maybe I'm too sad. And, and Mortis says... Everybody's too sad. So what? I felt like Ren in this Mm -hmm. really played that forward and says, Crows, everything is fucking weird. The idea being, again, like, yeah, everybody's too sad. Yeah, everything's too fucking weird. So what? Like, that's, again, that's not an excuse for anything ever. We're all, all, to a large extent, in, in that exact same boat. We all feel that way. We all are too sad. We all think everything's fucked up. But... That's that's the starting point. That's not the ending point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like that. And then the mention of the difference between Adam and Zeb are both kind of existential questions, like capital E existentialism, where your existence precedes your essence. And you uh, either get to or have to at some point decide what you're going to be and, you know, what actually creates value for you in the world, whether it's a normal modern world with all its, you know, technology, or it's a sort of post flood world where, you know, you have to battle monsters and ultra intelligent pigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of, I'm curious to see what y'all think of this, but every time I read a post apocalyptic book, and there's different tribes or different groups or whatever. I always try to figure out like where would I fit in if I was stuck in this situation, and um, especially in this in this novel where before they have you know the big flood, um, there's even kind of like more places where you can could fit in or not fit in. So like, would you belong in the corpsey corpse or at Anahu Spa or on the top of the garden? 
or down in the plebes and like, I don't know. I, I always, don't you kind of ask yourself that while you're reading the book is where would I be if I was in this type of world? Mm -hmm. Um, Did y'all think about that? And where do you think you would fit in amongst all the different places you could end up and where would you want to fit in? That's that's a multi-tiered question. Uh, I did not think about that particular thing while I was reading, but I think off the top of my head, I would say I would be the fish that Blackbeard had to eat when he was imitating Toby and then threw up on the ground. That was a lot more specific than I was saying. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I don't. I, I mean, I don't know where I'd want to fit in as long as I had two and only two legs. Well, John, I want to put a pin in what you said and come back to that. Uh, but um, you and know, this has been put a pin in it. I that's, I think that is a good question. And actually, John and I just read The Dark Forest with our friend Dyson, and it's a similar. It's it's very much a post-apocalypse. Humans are leaving the Earth. Some of them are. And some bad stuff happens. And I was certainly thinking about that. I'm going to get, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to talk about that book again, because there's also a main character in that one who there's this idea emphasized that like, he's just an ordinary person who has been placed in this circumstance that he is forced to deal with it. And I, I really like that idea. You know, I, I don't think I am smart enough to have been in the corpsey Corps or to have been in, in Matt Adam, to have been one of the hackers, you know? Obviously, Zeb is is super cool, but I also am kind of, like, jealous of him because I also recognize I'm I'm not that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a part of me that, that would have been very enticed by, like, a um, very self-righteous um, God's Gardener sort of situation, though... I don't know that I would have had the serious seriousness to have actually stuck it out with them. So probably, I mean, probably I would have died in the, in the, in the waterless flood to be totally honest. If, if, if I think where I would be, if I think where I want to be, I certainly think that this little fringe of survivors is an interesting place to be in though. As I said earlier, I think revealing myself, I think, I would have been one of the guys who's like, what's up with these, what's up with these Krakers? Like, what's up with these, what's up with these blue guys? I don't like them. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think in this world, I may very well have just gotten whatever disease that was. And that would have been the end of me. What about you, Ray? I still don't know. I don't know. That's the hard part. I think when you're reading this book is there's not really, I mean, unless you're just probably insane, there's no group that sounds appealing, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you were part of the corpse Corps, you would be insanely depressed. And I feel like your life would feel very shallow and insignificant and, uh, you know, they're not really doing anything. And then if you were in, the plebe lands, you'd probably get murdered and killed very quickly because that's just a really rough area. Gardeners is probably the only way to go, mm-hmm. but that also seems not, yeah, there's not a right answer. I don't think there's anything that yeah. someone would feel like they, but I think she did that on purpose. Yeah. Like she didn't pick 
group that you would necessarily feel yeah well drawn to or like you want to be a part of that was the thing about the gods gardeners when we first got introduced to them i think i was much more sympathetic like towards the cause right and could almost yeah. and could almost be like oh yeah great it's you know it's attractive to some extent but the more you dig into that it's like oh no this isn't this is kind of a weird self-righteous cult that i would not actually be interested in but yeah but yeah but it was probably the safest it was probably the safest bet out of everything yeah yeah i mean almost it's weird because the um the group that seemingly gets the most or the most love i guess for margaret atwood is the uh the group of mad atomites that exist after the waterless flood like that group um seem even though they have their little corals they seemingly work together pretty well um they are dealing with a terrible situation together at least and they can they were kind of responsible though for the whole thing mm-hmm. i mean not as responsible mm-hmm. as craig but they were really responsible mm-hmm. the whole time i kept wondering are we going to see adam again in the final pages of this book and realize that he was actually the mastermind behind all of it and it wasn't craig like the whole time I kind of felt, you know, an apprehension and I was nervous too, because I really like Zeb, but he played a big role as well. You know, we talk, they talk about the pill that was hidden at scales and tails. Um, ultimately the, whatever information was in that pill, whatever like biological strand they had, that's something that Craig built upon. And, you know, that's kind of how he came up with his final so they were they were really whether it was by choice or not they kind of brought about what happened. Yeah, well, and I guess it's different maybe between them sort of after the flood there where they are you know actors inside of a system that I don't know leaving that system if they're an enemy of Craig means probably dying. But if they just leave it on their own behalf, then they're probably not going to be destined for a great life anyways. So I'm not like letting them off the hook, but I think um, they were kind of tied up into a world that, I don't know, only had a few different ways of living unless you were, you know, a super genius. And then when Craig started the flood, then, all those systems break down and we can decide who we are again. I mean, I guess Zeb was an example before the the flood happened that he was also, again, kind of this person who made up his mind about who he wanted to be at any particular time for whatever reason he was doing it. Um, And so I guess, I mean, after the flood, when all the mad animates are together, you know, even if they caused it in any way, they still have to deal with the repercussions and living in a, you know, non-technological world that would be pretty harsh for a lot of people to contest with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, even at at some point in this book, and I've got to know, I guess I could turn the page, but there's this idea about, it's one of Zeb's identities and I forget where, but there's this line about saying the online world had become so monitored and sanitized even then though that the physical world had taken on the phrases, a mystic allure. So this idea that 
the the online world had really become at that point so clean and neat and in a way that there was already this like i'm going to say this cult of naturalism whether or not it was like god's gardener's extreme or not but this idea that somehow the the physical world was you know you could say like more more like holier than thou almost you know but also to some extent this idea that it, it did retain some kind of magic because it was unpredictable because you would have to adapt in a different way that the answers weren't already somehow programmed into the system and so i think that there is that sense of it early on but then still when you're actually when you don't have any other you know safety retreat back when that's it it's not as mystical it's just like there's freaking pagoons and wolf hogs out here <laughs> and what are we going to eat <laughs> definitely um well, yeah i mean this is unrelated to that but i just had kind of one more little topic that i thought was sort of interesting um in this book because it seems like a pretty nice metaphor um, that happens in the book that also relates to like humankind itself sort of outside of the, the narrative of the book. Uh, and that's the idea of like determinism. So because we are made of, you know, cells and brains that have a particular set of decisions that they're kind of naturally set to make, um, do we really have free will or free choice? And I think so I don't go far in the pod, but um, I, I went up to this like over this door over here, and I think that I heard somebody listening to the previous episode, the previous uh, you know last one of our podcasts, and it w- wouldn't have been me. I don't listen to it myself, of course, because I'm not that vain. But I remember hearing Asian, and I thought, oh, haha, like this would be a funny thing to say. And then I personally said that mm. immediately after. So I just, I don't know, when that was brought up in the book a little bit, and I'll jump into the book and audio book it to remind, like to show where that happens in the book. But I think it's just kind of an interesting conversation about, you know, when you hear yourself in conversation, you have the same reactions every time that you go through that conversation, even though we think that, oh, I made a unique choice in that instance, but maybe you actually didn't. So uh-huh. on... uh paper copy uh, page 139. Uh, so this is a conversation between Ivory Bill, Manatee, Tamara, and Zun Zusito. Uh, and this is audiobook. How much of Craker behavior is inherited and how much is cultural? Do they even have what you would call a culture separate from the expression of their genes? Or are they more like ants? What about the singing? Uh, Etc. So that was just like them looking at this different race and seeing their, you know, reactions to the world that they themselves programmed and then are kind of thinking about, oh, this seems different. Like we didn't anticipate this, but this falls right in line with what we intended. You know, so again, kind of trying to figure out if there is uh, a capacity for true innovation outside of stuff that's in one way or another pre-programmed. Um, and then this one uh, seems like kind of a, a slight to some people, but this is page 169 in your paper copy. Uh, there was a Moppet shop. Oh, sorry, audiobook. 
there was a Moppet shop with a mix of real girls and prosty bots, depending on how much pre-programmed interaction you wanted. Not that you could always tell the difference. So I don't know if that's like a slight to <laughs> prosty bots or uh, the humans, the real girls. But again, um, how much decision-making do we have in a day-to-day basis? It's kind of a, a question I think runs through at least this book, maybe the other two as well. Well, and also to your examples there in the book, I think another question is, so defining what's natural, right? And so I, I think we did talk about this a little bit on a previous podcast, just to say, um, you know, I, I remember reading another thing at some point about some humans dug some canals. A thousand years go by. This is an old civilization that dug these. A thousand years go by. Those canals have integrated so much into the landscape that they're indistinguishable from what you would call a natural formation. And so at that point, it's absurd to say like, oh, well, those are man-made because someone did dig those, but it's been a thousand years. The planet has evolved. The landscape has evolved. Cultures have changed. And so at that point, could you, it, it makes, it wouldn't be nonsense to say, well, that's unnatural because originally a thousand years ago, somebody dug that. And I think it's the same for these other ideas. Like, if you set this thing in motion, and this is the question with the Krakers, then if they develop a culture, if they develop a new creation story and culture and, and history, who's to say that they're not natural also? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a super deep like conversation that we could rattle on about kind of forever. Um, and I think that's, again, kind of to the strength of Margaret Atwood that... Again, I do think that this trilogy uh, gave us the most human perspective on events out of anything that we've read thus far, um, but also brings up these super complicated questions regarding sociology and ideas of civilization and culture. Um, and again, even the the actual science inside this book uh, and the trilogy is you know, just as complicated as anything else that we've read so far. So... Uh, yeah. I don't know. Do we have anything else or well, is it that time? I just have, Go ahead. I have one thing that I asked you to put a pen in a minute ago. All right. Yeah. And, um, on page two eighty four. Welcome back to, uh, let's put a pen in it. Of the hardback. Uh, I'll just audiobook this. I've got some news for you. Says Rebecca, when they're cleaning up your pals caught a frog for you. So I'm, I'm just here to report that the Krakers, uh, at least maybe Blackbeard, they became frog boys. Um, uh, Ray, just uh, so you know, you become a frog boy when you touch a frog. So me and John, we're frog boys. Steve, I think, is a frog boy. And I can't remember if Dyson is or not. He probably is. Ray, have you ever well, touched a frog? I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But no, I actually hope I get off the ship before I have the opportunity to become a frog boy. Are there frogs on the ship? Yeah, there are definitely frogs on the ship. Are we under a plague from the ship? The is so big. You might be. Have you done anything bad lately? Most definitely. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead. 
and give in the Atwood series. Wait, stop it. What are you doing? Take a look. It's in, it's a, in a book. book. Rating, rating systems. Hi, welcome to Rating Systems. I'm your host, John. With me, as always, some other people. Uh, so, Brent, what do you rate this book? You know what? Well, I'm, I'm curious just about... Okay, I'm going to rate this within the trilogy. I actually think of the trilogy... My favorite of the three was The Year of the Flood, the second book. I think that that's actually really hard. This might actually be, I think maybe I like The Year of the Flood and then Orcs and Crake and then Matt Adam. Nothing against Matt Adam because I loved all three of these books. And I'm, you know, who knows how I might rate this in a top 20 countdown, for instance, of all the books that we've read this season. Who's to say? But. Of the three, The Year of the Flood was by far my favorite because it twisted the first book that we read, introduced these new characters, and told the same story. Orcs and Crake, though, was just my first like out-of-the-gate introduction to this universe, and so I really loved it. And so in that regard, I think that maybe Matt Adam was number three out of the trilogy. Uh, all right, Ray, you've been so patiently waiting. What do you rate this book? I have been so patiently waiting. Um, I rate it one Blackbeard out of one Blackbeard, but also going to come uh, come out and say that I think the second book was my favorite in the series. It would probably go two, three, one um, if I were to be ranking them. So I did think that Zeb's stories were very interesting. Um, but for some reason, the third book took me a lot longer to read. Uh, really. Well, you've been in that uh, hibernation cocoon for so long. Yeah, I read it before I got into hibernation cocoon. Oh, okay. Um, read it before? Why didn't we do this immediately? I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead. most punctual. Um, but I think the second book was my favorite just because I felt that Ren and Toby's stories were probably more compelling than Zeb. Um, again, he was always, you know, very brave, never afraid. He had stories that were like incredibly adventurous and heroic and all that kind of stuff. But if like looking back, I would think that what Ren and Toby went through and how they dealt with the same situations they were in, you know, they were heroes, but in a different way. So I would say the second book, I was more compelled by the stories than that. So and that's all. Very good. Uh, and I'm going to go with a 1.97 legs out of two legs. And that's how we play rating systems. Uh, remember to spay and neuter your pets and cut their front two legs off. Actually, you get to decide any two of their legs. It's great. Take a look. It's in a, it's in a book. book. Rating, Rating systems. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, now it's time for your listener challenge. Ooh, ooh. Uh, welcome to listener challenge the galaxy's favorite numerically-based game that they can't possibly win. Uh, this week on Listener Challenge, another impossible game. 
so in the paperback copy of this book, uh, can you tell me, not including the acknowledgments page, what is the very last page of this book? So how many total pages are in this book, not including the acknowledgments page? The answer, of course, is 390. Uh, please call in, write, text, email, smoke signals, what have you. We will not get them, probably not even look at them, and you can't win anyways. But if you do, you will get a lovely and delicious prize package from Corellan Sweet Tea, the sweetest tea in the galaxy. Sip. Thank you, and we're back. And that's been your listener challenge. That was, that was probably my favorite listener challenge of the day. Thank you for your backhanded compliment. Uh, all right. I guess the only thing left to do. Yeah. Let's wrap it out. Contractually bound. Um, well, yep. Um, so, Ray, you we we finished this trilogy. Um, you going to stick around for a while? You got a cocoon to get to? You got to get back to your mom? What are you thinking? Well, I probably do need to get back to my mom at some point. But I was I was thinking, um, I've kind of been exploring your ship for a while. You have some pretty cool technology. I don't know if you've ever used it before. But I could probably, you know, like virtual call in sometime mm-hmm. if you ever read any interesting books that you wanted to talk about. Well, we've got a lip portal. Do you know how to use one of those? No. We'll work on it. That's not the interesting technology. We're not. Yeah, we're not configured for lip portals That's on not, Inglenook. Mm-hmm. That's the most interesting technology I know of. Well, you've only left, you haven't even left this room, so. Lip portals right here. Yep, it's the most interesting interesting technology in this room. Awesome. Well, yeah, you're obviously welcome anytime. I'm, I, I really am excited to um, get through this trilogy in particular. And, you know, this with the completion of this means that up next is our season finale, John. Something to look forward to. It really is. I can't wait to see what surprises are in tow. Me too. I, I especially can't wait to see what we have to say about the book we just read, The Dark Forest. Absolutely. I'm sure it's going to be very insightful. I mean, hopefully a lot of different characters show up from this uh, podcast storied history Mm -hmm. maybe a baby producer or two who knows Mm -hmm. i'm sure there'll be a lot of old favorites and some young favorites in the case of the baby producers exactly well yeah i guess in that case it's it's time to wrap it out john yo 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 Yo, Mad Adam, coming at him. Frog boys playing like their toys. Jump around, get some off the ground, like Michael Jordan. Space Jam. He's a kind of ham, like pagoons. Like they're not buffoons. They got human brains. Uh, sinking that basketball like it's a drain. Yep. <laughs>
Yep. Yep. Yo, um, Zeb. That's a word. I'm a pleb. I go to the Pleblands on the hill. Went up north to Alaska. I got in a fight. I killed a bear that was attractive of me to do. Ray loves me because I'm a hero. But she can't do math, including numbers like zero. Just kidding, not to belittle our guests here. They're all delightful and lovely. None of this rhymes, but it's true. Uh, I'm here for you. Uh, I, I love you, universe. Bye. See ya. We out. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams I walked alone. Streets of cobblestone, beneath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light, I split the night and the sound of silence. And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never share No one did Who said I you do not know? Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell. And the people bowed and prayed To the neon god they made And the sign flashed out its warning In the words that it was forming And the sign said the words of the prophets Are written on the subway walls Turn them in Silence.